This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Progressive, The David Pakman Show, The Colbert Report, Democracy Now!, The Onion Radio News, Comedian Lee Camp, and Mumia Abu-Jamal with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Colbert Report. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that inmates that are in private prisons do not have the right to sue the prisons for violating their constitutional rights. Okay. Good, good. Because, you know, if uh, we put you in a private prison, uh, those contractors should be allowed to do whatever they like. This is America, right? I and, mean, and of course, if they're profiting off of imprisoning you, they should get, have the right to violate any of your constitutional rights that they like. At least that's what all the conservative Supreme Court justices believed in 2001. Now, fast forward to 2011, uh, there is an inmate by the name of Richard Lee Pollard, uh, and he is in a f uh, private prison in California, and he wants to sue because he feels that his constitutional rights were violated. He uh, fell in an accident, broke both of his elbows, and says that he didn't receive the proper care that he needed. In fact, they tied him up with a black box which forces you to keep your hands down and together that further injured his elbows at least he claims and he also says that he needed a splint but they never you know mm -hmm. did the medical procedure so now um, the Supreme Court has agreed they're so nice they have agreed to listen to this case and decide whether or not he's allowed to at least sue the employees that are working at this private prison but the private prison itself cannot be sued are they not merciful uh, first of all, I like that the only people who might be liable are, you know, the low-level employees, <laughs> right? The guards, etc. But not the company. Of course, not the company. Okay, we must protect corporations at all costs through our supreme corporation. I mean, Supreme Court. Okay. By the way, you know, in the 1970s, uh, the Chamber of Commerce hatched a plan uh, to infiltrate the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, it's a loaded word, infiltrate, right? Mm -hmm. But a guy by the name of Lewis Powell wrote a memo saying how we should get more uh, Supreme Court justice that will agree with corporations and that that is the final branch of government that's important to capture. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Nixon made him a Supreme Court justice. Okay, and ever since then, uh, the one set thing that all a lot of the justices agree on is corporations are almost always right. Even the liberal judges oftentimes side with the corporations. Now, I tell you that in this context, because think of how crazy this is, mm -hmm. right? So, if you're not allowed to go to court to get, you know, some sort of adjudication on whether they violated your constitutional rights, well, they can do any damn thing they like to you. I mean, absolutely. So now this guy, he had broken elbows, etc. I mean, I don't know. I'd like to hear the case. I don't know if he's right or wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but what if they smashed the hell out of his elbows? They ripped his arm socket off and they beat him with it, right? Well, you go to the Supreme Court, they say, oh, no, nope, sad day for you. You don't have any constitutional rights. A corporation runs that prison. Okay, now, they say, oh, don't worry. Uh, you know, you can go to the Bureau of Prisons and go through the administrative steps that you would need to da da da, -da. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, And if you're in a federal prison, well, you could go to court, but you couldn't ask for money anyway. Well, then who's going to take your case? Like, if you can't win any money, who's going to take your case, right? So either way, you're screwed. 
How about, look, I'm not saying we need to give prisoners extra rights. That's crazy talk, I right? I think that's crazy, too. But, of course. But constitutional rights, I, I mean, they're protected under constitutional rights, especially when it comes to torture and abuse. They should not be tortured and abused in prison. Prison guards, anyone working in a private prison should not have the ability to do whatever they want to an inmate without any consequences. And look, you might say, hey, look, there could be other laws that apply there, and maybe they get charged with assault. But how are you even going to know if the guy can't bring it to court? That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. All day long they work so hard till the sun is going down. Working on the highways and byways and wearing, wearing a frown. You hear them moaning their lives away, then you hear somebody say, That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Yeah. One of the most distressing legal developments over the last couple decades has been the steady erosion of the Fourth Amendment. It's supposed to protect the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And it requires warrants on top of that and probable cause for those warrants. Unfortunately, one Supreme Court decision after another has chiseled away at these protections. And this week came the latest chisel or more like a power drill from the Supreme Court. The case involved a Kentucky man named Hollis King. The police weren't even looking for Hollis King. They were looking for a drug suspect who went down the hall in King's apartment building. But they didn't know which door the suspect had entered, and they smelled marijuana coming from King's apartment, so they knocked on his door, even though the suspect wasn't there. When King didn't open the door and the police thought he was destroying evidence, they barged right in. The court ruled by an astonishing 8-to-1 margin that this search was constitutional. So now, all the police need to do is to assert that they think you might be destroying evidence, and then they can blast your door down without a warrant. Somehow, I don't think that's what our founders had in mind. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. All right, joining us is ACLU Michigan Staff Attorney Mark Fancher. He's involved with the Racial Justice Project. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mark. Oh, thank you for having me. So I want to talk about this uh, police extracting information from cell phones during traffic stops. We actually had a segment on the show a couple of months ago which uh, where we talked about how to handle police asking to look at your cell phone. Um, tell me a little bit about how this issue first came on your radar. What exactly is it that police are doing during traffic stops? Well, we, we heard that the state police might have uh, these cell phone extraction devices in their possession. And uh, we submitted a Freedom of Information Act request, essentially for the purpose of confirming that they had them. Uh, if they had indicated that they had them, we just wanted to touch base and, and to confirm that they were using them lawfully. Uh, we had a great deal of trouble 
uh, getting the initial documents just to confirm the existence of the devices. Uh, but uh, after we uh, followed up and requested uh, incident reports and uh, logs and other documents which would give us some sense of, of how they were using them, uh, we ran into a great deal of difficulty, starting with a price tag that was placed on the uh, the documents at more than half a million dollars. So what I read was that the you were the ACLU of Michigan was asked to pay before th you would even get a single document about two hundred and seventy-two thousand dollars, and that my understanding is these costs were not itemized. In other words, you had no idea exactly where were these costs coming from, right? That's correct. It was an estimate of uh, uh, it was a purported estimate of uh, what it would cost for them to process it. Uh, they did break it down uh, into uh, I think they said that uh, duplication costs would exceed one hundred thousand dollars, and that the uh, labor cost would be in excess of four hundred thousand dollars. But beyond that, it was not very specific at all. Where do these? I mean, maybe I just I, I'm I'm not uh, smart enough, or I don't know enough about this. But to me, it seems like an incredibly high cost for putting together some documents. Does it not? It does. I mean, the most that they've ever been able to tell us or to say is that uh, in order for them to find the documents, they have to go through. Uh, many, many reports over the course of uh, an extended period of time. But uh, to my way of thinking, uh, you know, that amount of money would be enough to run a small nonprofit for about six or seven months. Uh, and, you know, I don't know that the project is, is that massive. Uh, also, uh, we followed up over the course of many months after that with a whole series of much more narrow requests, which were directed toward a very limited periods of time, you know, two weeks, one week. And uh, in response to many of those requests, uh, we were told that there were no documents for that period. Uh, so if you have so many documents that it's going to cost you more than $100,000 to duplicate them, uh, you would think that we would be running into those documents uh, with every request that we made. So it's either uh, they're not being completely candid with us or uh, they had one incident on one particular day, uh, which we've not stumbled upon, where they generated thousands of pages of documents in connection with the use of this cell phone extraction device. So tell me about the, what do you know about this device? I mean, is it the type of thing where the person who is involved in the traffic stop wouldn't know that the information on their cell phone is, is being captured? How does this work? Well, the, uh, the trooper would have to actually uh, take possession of the cell phone. And uh, once they have it, uh, they would put it into uh, the cell phone extraction device. According to the manufacturer, the entire contents of the cell phone can be uh, extracted within the space of about 90 seconds. Uh, so certainly the uh, individual would know if they handed them the cell phone. But what happens within the next uh, one and a half to two minutes, they might not know. And legally, I mean, what, uh, what responsibility do the people who are being uh, stopped have to allow the police to, to even, number one, to hand over their cell phone in a routine traffic stop? What are, what are people's rights in these cases? Well, the rights are all governed by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And the Fourth Amendment was designed specifically to protect uh, the private papers and private uh, matters of, of individuals. Uh, so now, uh, cell phones are used so widely, 
And so many people use them as repositories for their most personal information, uh, passcodes for accounts, uh, social security numbers, and, and many, any, any number of things that they would not want the public to know. And anything that an individual uh, conceals from public view is regarded as private. And law enforcement agencies or any uh, branch of government uh, has no right under the Fourth Amendment to look into those places or to search them unless they've approached a judge and persuaded that judge that there's a need for a warrant which gives them authority to search those areas. So in a routine traffic stop where presumably there would not be any warrant, I mean, this would be the first interaction that the individual is having with, with law enforcement, there is no reason anybody would, would be uh, compelled to turn over their cell phone as part of a, of a regular traffic stop. Yes, under the law, that's correct. And if uh, a request is made for the cell phone, uh, the uh, individual is certainly within his or her rights uh, to ask the trooper or the officer uh, if they have a, a warrant to search. Uh, if they say that they do have a warrant, then they are obligated to turn the cell phone over. But uh, in the absence of a warrant, uh, technically, uh, they may not be obligated to turn it over. But it's, it's hard to uh, substitute one's judgment uh, for that of the individual who's facing those situations. And sometimes uh, prudence dictates that even though uh, they're not obligated to turn it over, they may want to turn it over uh, just to preserve their own safety. Um, but uh, if that happens, then it, it's certainly uh, important for them to take very careful note of every detail of that encounter. Uh, the name of the officer, what was said, by whom, and when, uh, so that if this is challenged at some point in the future, uh, they are able to provide a complete and credible account of, of how it happened. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Attention to true crime. I'll ask him who's got the record for heads batted in. Please welcome Bill James. Hey, Mr. James. Thanks so much for coming on. Wait, don't get up. All right, sir. You, 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 uh, you were famous for the, the, in the 70s and the 80s. You revolutionized baseball statistics by applying your own, your own method, so your own analysis. What did you, what did you do? The, uh, I cut out a lot of stupid stuff. <laughs> what was the stupid stuff you cut out? Like, the, people would, like, romanticize certain aspects of so statistical I, analysis? I, just started, I started counting a lot of things that people hadn't thought to count before. That was one thing. And I, I consistently asked the question, 
which has nothing to do with the book I'm here for. But oh, I, know, I know that. <laughs> I just want to give the people your CV here. Uh, I know. Uh, I consistently ask the question, what, what is the significance of this to the questions that people are debating? And it turned and out that they, they, there was no relationship between what they were saying and what they wanted to say? The, uh, very often, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you, you blew everybody like out of the show, water. You, you blew everybody out of the water with, with, with that. Now, now you've got a new love you're sharing with people. It's an old love of yours, but new to us. It's called Popular Crime. Reflections on the celebration of violence. No, you, you know, you used to, you know, be known for your, you know, your following sports. Now it's violent crime. Um, why not just follow football and kill two birds with one stone? The uh, or uh, how many birds could you kill with a baseball bat? Think of it. Wow. How many? You're the expert. I don't how know. Many? I, I, I can tell you that a lot of people have been killed with baseball bats. Really? Yes. Who's the Babe Ruth of bashing heads in? I, I forgot to do research on that. I didn't know you would ask. What? What is? What? what why the love of popular crime? You've you've always enjoyed. The uh, I, I've always been interested in them. Crime stories are keys to what people goes on inside your head that you don't ordinarily talk about. Uh, crime stories are one of the most interesting things in the, the newspaper or on the internet because they tell you things about what's going on in people's lives. They make details of people's lives tremendously important and focus attention on them. Uh, in a way that and it, it exposes a side of people's lives that they never talk about otherwise. And Bill? this becomes very interesting. Bill? Yes? Is there something you'd like to talk about right now? <laughs> Is there some side of your life you're trying to tell us about right now? You can admit anything. No one will pay attention because of Bin Laden. I'm a meth tweaker. You know that. Uh, I, I have heard rumors, yes. Yes. So... It, what, what is it, you say this says something about our, our culture that we celebrate violence so much, that we're so obsessed with these sort of, the lurid details of crime. More about human nature than about our culture. All, all cultures are obsessed with crime stories. The Bible is full of crime stories. Every culture around the world is obsessed with crimes, which are very much the same across time and across cultures. They, the, uh, we, are, uh, we are very interested in where that girl went the, uh, uh, and always have been. Um, let's talk about some of the more famous violent crimes in America. Uh, can, can you apply statistical analysis to, to violent crime? Like, like Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her father 40 whacks. When she saw what she had done, she gave her mother 41. What, what, what's her whack average there? You, you could indeed apply statistics to violent crime, but it would make a very boring book, and I didn't do it. So, uh, do, can you, do you have opinions about whether, uh, people are in jail who are innocent? Like, what about Lizzie Borden? Did she, do you think she did it? Uh, no, she did not do it. Lizzie what? Borden, she did not commit it. It rhymes. <laughs> if yeah. it rhymes, you did the crimes. <laughs> that's, that's a law, I think. It, it, it certainly should. It certainly should be, yes. And now that Johnny Cochran has passed on, you can apply to replace him with that. No, uh, uh, what, what about some of the, the big ones that are going on right now? Like, do you talk, Amanda Knox? I did not talk about Amanda Knox. It's too recent. I tried to write about cases where you actually knew what happened. I mean, the only thing we know for sure about the Amanda Knox case is the Italian justice system is a terrible mess. Otherwise, nothing is really apparent at this point. But she's clearly innocent. I think so. Yeah, because she's attractive. <laughs> well, are evil so, people, so are murderers attractive people or ugly people? For the most part, they're ugly people. A point that. No, seriously. Really? Wait, seriously. So that evil is ugly? Well. No, but they're mostly people not living the best of lives. And, oh, I understand. And they, have, they have hard lives, and they express it by 
Chopping people up. Yeah, occasionally. Do you have a favorite... Murderer? Murderer. The, uh, the, uh, uh, the only murderer for whom I have much sympathy was Winnie Judd in 1932, and that's just because she lived to be a nice, sweet old lady and kind of outgrew it. It was a phase. Right. <laughs> it's a phase she was going through. Are, are there great unsolved murder cases in American history right now? What makes, one of the things that makes a crime fast, uh, enduringly fascinating is if we don't know what happened. Once, once you know what happened in a case, the case tends to lose interest. The, uh, uh, but it's the pursuit of trying to figure, put this all together that makes a case fascinating. Yeah. Now, b baseball has, uh, besides like, statistics, it has collectibles. Is there such a thing also in crime? Like, what's the Onus Wagner card of murder? The, uh, uh, I'm sure, probably one of John Wayne Gacy's paintings, but oh, right. I those don't do, have any. Those, those, those did sell. They did sell. Did you, even as a child, did you enjoy crime stories? The, uh, even when I was a small kid, yes. And did this alarm anyone? <laughs> the, uh, no, state services wasn't as robust then as they are now. Thank you so much. I want to play an excerpt from a June 2009 Senate Judiciary Committee meeting when U.S. Senator Russ Feingold questioned Attorney General Eric Holder about warrantless wiretapping. In a speech to the American Constitutional Society in June 2008, uh, you, sir, said the following, I never thought that I would see the day when a president would act in direct defiance of federal law by authorizing warrantless NSA surveillance of American citizens. And the president himself, also uh, several times as a, a senator and during the campaign, said the program was illegal. Now that you are the Attorney General, is there any doubt in your mind that the warrantless wiretapping program was illegal? Well, I think that the warrantless wiretapping program as it existed at that point was certainly unwise in that it was put together without the approval of Congress um, and as a result did not have um, all the protections, um, all the strength that it might have had behind it, as, as I think it now exists with regard to um, having had congressional approval of it. That was, uh, that was Eric Holder. Uh, your, uh, your response, uh, unwise or illegal? Uh, I admire Eric Holder. Uh, I actually had the honor and privilege of working with him uh, when I was in the criminal division of the Department of Justice. I, I, that is that is uh, not a very apt description of what was being done. You know, I understand there's some argument about this, but it's absolutely clear using strict construction of the law. The law that we worked under said it was a federal felony for anyone to conduct electronic surveillance without going through the FISA court. That's what it said. It did not have an exception for the president. It didn't have an exception for time of war. It said anyone who does this without a warrant is guilty of a felony. And if, 
for myself, I think the real story here is that un, un, number, we don't know the number of Americans whose uh, phones were tapped. We don't know what happened with that information. And I think those people are entitled to know that their uh, information was seized. And I think people ought to be prosecuted for violating the law. It reminds me of Nixon um, when he said if the president does it, it's not illegal. But Thomas Tam, let me ask you two questions. Have people ever been notified who were illegally wiretapped? And I remember well the whole issue of the telecoms like Verizon and AT&T uh, being involved with this warrantless wiretapping. And at the time, Senator Obama said he would filibuster any attempt to give them retroactive immunity. He not only didn't filibuster, but ultimately, and it was soon before the Democratic National Convention where he was nominated for to be the presidential candidate, um, he not only didn't filibuster, he supported the retroactive immunity to the telecoms. And as we got into Denver for the Democratic Convention, AT&T um, logos were emblazoned on every delegate bag of the DNC. What about this extended culpability? Well, I, I think that's really troublesome. Uh, and it's disappointing to me that, that uh, I guess we know politicians say things to get elected and then sometimes uh, change uh, their campaign promises or didn't live up to their campaign promises. Uh, I think it's outrageous that there was uh, retroactive immunity. The Telecoms and the Department of Justice worked every day uh, with legally and lawfully getting these uh, uh, wiretaps approved by the FISA court. They, kn they knew what the law was. They employed very uh, sharp and expensive lawyers to advise them. And I am heartened that there is a case in the system now where uh, some plaintiffs have uh, shown that they have standing to challenge uh, their belief that they were wiretapped and uh, the Court of uh, Appeals, and I believe it's in the Second Circuit, has just recently uh, uh, made a ruling that they can go forward with that suit. And I think then we will learn, uh, hopefully, how many people were illegally wiretapped, and then maybe we will learn what was done with that information. To answer your first question, I don't think those people have been notified. Um, the FISA statute actually contains uh, language that says if, if we have gone up on, in an emergency situation on somebody's phone, uh, we have 72 hours to present that information to a judge to basically get it approved. If that judge said that we did not have probable cause, we were obligated by the statute to notify the person who uh, was wiretapped and tell them that, in fact, their communications were seized. And, and I believe that that should... Uh, that should happen to all the people that uh, got wiretapped uh, due to warrantless wiretapping. And Amy, you're absolutely right. This, this is what the law was about, was because of the Nixon abuses, because Martin Luther King was wiretapped by the FBI, uh, you know, peace activists were wiretapped by the FBI. That is why we had that statute. And I believe, again, we have seen an abuse of executive authority.
remember after the underwear bomber was arrested and after the Times Square bomber was arrested, Republicans gave the Obama administration holy hell because they gave them Miranda warnings at some point. One was after an hour, the other one was after three hours, and the Republicans were like, no, don't do it! Don't give them any rights! Now, that doesn't make any sense because we gave them the Miranda warnings, and then they gave us a ton of information anyway. And that's almost always what happens. Look, it's shown throughout history that they don't shut up anyway. They tell you what they did anyway, which I've always been amazed by. And that's exactly what happened in these two cases as well. So experience shows us that the Miranda warnings did not stop them from, uh, you know, telling the authorities what they need to do and what the information that they had. And actually, the Bush administration, uh, most of the time in the United States, gave Miranda warnings. Of course, there's a the famous case of Jose Padilla, who was just treated as an enemy combatant, even though he was a U.S. citizen. That was absolutely outrageous. Uh, but when they arrested people inside the U.S. for possible terrorist plots, they gave them Miranda warnings. And, of course, at that time, the Republicans didn't complain because it was a Republican president. Now that it's a Democratic president, of course, uh, they raised a stink over it. And the Obama administration, as is their way, for no reason, later buckled. And that was today. First of all, actually, they went up and they wanted to get legislation passed saying, hey, we don't have to give them Miranda warnings. But they had trouble with that because Democrats didn't agree. Some of the con real conservatives uh, that care about civil liberties didn't agree. And then the other conservatives were like, it's not good enough. You should have to take away all their rights, treat them as enemy combatants, and don't try them here and send them to Guantanamo right away. So the legislation didn't go far. So if I was Obama, first of all, I wouldn't have done that because I don't want to get intimidated and bullied uh, by the Republicans, right? So there's no way I would have been like, oh my God, you criticized me for the Miranda warnings. All right, I'm going to take away these uh, Miranda warnings based on you know your criticism. But of course, that's what Obama does. So, But after you tried for the legislation and it didn't work, Come on, man, wrap it up. You say, hey, I did the best I could. Some of my bitch Republicans voted it down. Or, you know, we're going to vote it down and didn't let it come up for a vote. So, instead, of course, uh, the Obama administration finds a new way to fold, and they're like, okay, well, then we'll do it by executive order. So now a Democratic president is saying uh, that they are going to use a very limited exception. In 1984, Supreme Court had an exception for, look, if it's, you're in the middle of an emergency and you've got a safety hazard, you don't have to stop in the middle of shooting and say, hey, I give you the Miranda warnings, etc. right? Now, I'm oversimplifying, but that's about it, right? Uh, now, they're saying, well, not an imminent safety problem, but it's an imminent political problem because Republicans will criticize me. So I will not give them Miranda warnings for an indeterminate period of time based on the decision of the president. It's a terrible decision. It might be an unconstitutional decision. You know, if you want to take it up all the way to the Supreme Court and argue to take away Miranda warnings, I actually have less of a problem with that. You just do an executive order saying, ah, I don't feel like following a Supreme Court decision. And by the way, all the questioning you do before giving them Miranda warnings still would not be admissible in court. So all you're doing is screwing up your case later when you want to try that guy and you want to bring him to justice. It's a, it's a classic Obama fold because it's totally unnecessary. It's way after the fact of Republicans criticizing him. He already tried to do it uh, in one way. And the Republicans didn't let him. So he gives a triple fold here for no reason. 
And by the way, this is, you know, look, in some ways it's better than Bush because Bush sent a lot of people to Guantanamo Bay where they had uh, no Miranda warnings and no rights. Uh, although, of course, Obama has not closed Guantanamo Bay. But in some ways it's worse than Bush because Bush did not take away some of the Miranda warnings, you know, in cases here in the U.S. It's, you know, why did we elect a Democratic president if he's going to do this? You know, I, I look, I know it's better than Bush. Because, for example, in Libya, we, you know, Bush would have either done nothing because there wasn't enough oil, or if he decided there was enough oil, he would have sent in a third invasion with ground troops. It would have been a disaster. I, I, I get all that. But you're talking about the lowest bar in history. I, I really think Bush was one of the worst presidents we've ever had. And if he's just a little better than him, and by the way, worse than him in some regards, I don't call that a, a giant win. Look, one, the guy just cannot negotiate. He just loves to give away the store. And then number two, uh, he's just not that progressive. He just isn't. A progressive president who actually believed in this stuff wouldn't do this. I mean, you imagine Russ Feingold, and they're like, oh, okay, now we're going to take away Miranda warnings. <laughs> Russ Feingold would have been like, yeah, yeah, get a rough talk to his advisors and run them off. But that's not the guy we got. That's the harsh reality of it. My father is a lawyer and my mother is a saint. I don't have any siblings, so I don't practice much restraint. Everyone comes from somewhere, some from the bottom, some the top. Nobody comes from nowhere. And most of us don't know just what we've got. There are times when I really miss Russ Feingold in the U.S. Senate, and last week was one of them. On Thursday, Harry Reid pathetically bowed to the wishes of Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and agreed to extend some of the worst provisions of the Patriot Act for another four years. These provisions include the notorious one that allows the FBI to demand from librarians and bookstore owners the names of books that customers are checking out or purchasing. Reed wouldn't get behind Democrats who wanted to at least put some tighter restrictions on these expanded FBI powers, which the agency has already been abusing. And Reed also wouldn't get behind Democrats who wanted at least to provide greater public accountability. Nope, Reed just went along, thinly grasping at the so-called compromise, which was to extend these provisions for four years rather than make them permanent. I don't call that hard bargaining, I call it caving, and it's just too bad that Feingold wasn't there to criticize his own party for its lack of a spine and its lack of respect for our civil liberties. These expanded FBI powers are all but permanent now, and they bring us closer to the police state that Russ Feingold has been warning us about. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 
$5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. This is what you get. It's the Onion Radio News. Police are on the lookout for a poorly drawn man. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Four days after the murder of Detroit, Michigan liquor store clerk Bernard Golub, police have announced they are seeking a poorly drawn man in his 40s. Police Chief Jerry Oliver made this statement to reporters just moments ago. All units have been advised to be on the lookout for a Caucasian male about 5 feet 9 inches tall with dark hair and a lopsided face that looks all wrong in the jaw area. Oliver urged citizens to keep an eye out for the suspect who is said to be armed and badly depicted, adding that the suspect has a scar or possibly an ink smear across his forehead. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Some of our audience will remember my experience with a a porno pat-down from the TSA on a trip to Miami recently. I opted not to have the radiation body scanner, and I have never felt better about the decision, Lewis, than I do right now, because I read that the TSA is now admitting to having bungled the radiation tests. Remember when we were told time after time, Lewis, about how it's all fine and there's just a tiny amount of radiation and so on and so forth. You remember that, Lewis. I do. It turns out the amount of radiation is significantly higher. And when I say significantly, we're talking about 10 times, 10 times as high. And I'm, I'm, what can I say? I'm glad I didn't go through it. Of course, any amount of radiation is harmful. And cumulative, absolutely. So, well, but yeah, big surprise. The TSA is reanalyzing the radiation levels of X-ray body scanners installed in airports nationwide after testing produced dramatically higher than expected results. The TSA has deployed at least 500 body scanners to 78 airports, said the machines meet all safety standards and would remain in operation despite a, quote, calculation error in safety studies, which showed 10 times higher than expected radiation levels. This is the, the most unbelievable part is the source of this confusion. The snafu involves tests conducted on the roughly 250 backscatter x-ray machines produced by RapiScan of Los Angeles, which will deliver another 250 at about $180,000 each. Uh, About the 250 millimeter wave technology uh, machines produced by L3 Communications of New York, or rather that part, the L3 Communications machines were not part of the results. Now remember, Rapiscan is a client of Michael Chertoff's consulting group, Bush's Secretary of Homeland Security. So if you want to talk corruption, if you want to be completely unsurprised, Lewis, by why we should expect that the testing was not done properly, it was not done correctly, we didn't have the real information, just look at the fact that Michael Chertoff was on TV discussing this technology 
without mentioning his business relationship with the manufacturer. You remember covering that, Lewis, and of it's course, just, just right. one of many examples, right? I, I don't think any of us are surprised. No. Rapid scan technicians in the field are required to test radiation levels 10 times in a row and divide by 10 to produce an average radiation measurement. Often, the testers failed to divide results by 10. That, I don't even get that, because wouldn't that mean that the actual radiation levels are, are 10 times lower than what is being measured? Yeah. I don't, I don't get the explanation, but you know what? What we're hearing <laughs> is that the actual radiation is 10 times higher. I'm not surprised. I'm glad I opted for the bizarre porno pat-down where a federal agent told me I wasn't taking it seriously enough. I needed to keep my palms up. He couldn't do anything about the fact that it was ticklish. He had to stick his hands between my pants and my undergarments and shake out and shimmy around me. As absurd as that was, <laughs> I hate, I, it sounds weird. I'm glad that I got that instead of the 10 times radiation. Right, and there are no, there are no regulations here, right? There's no, there are no regulations on acceptable levels of radiation coming out of these machines. Well, it's one of those things where th what is acceptable is an ongoing discussion, right? I mean, what is acceptable, any amount is bad. Well, I mean, regardless of what, what an acceptable level would be, there are no regulations. I, I don't know that. I actually don't know. Okay. I mean, in other words, with a microwave, there must be some, some limit to what amount of radiation can be emitted from it, you know, to you standing just next to it. There has to be some limit somewhere, I think. I could be wrong. Well, we haven't heard about it. Well, as we know, Lewis, just because we haven't heard of something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That's true. But uh, regardless, the point is we were told a certain thing, and it turns out that that's not, that's not the reality. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. I saw a news report that the students at Glasgow University had staged a sit-in to protest tuition increases. A couple of things struck me about this. First of all, apparently the students in the UK care. What the f*** is that? You're not supposed to care about things. You're supposed to see how high you can build a cheeseburger at the all-you-can-stomach college cafeteria and then use your laptops to make mashups of your favorite rap songs and dancing cats. You're not supposed to care. When I was in college, the only time I saw a large group of us really care about something was when the local store ran out of Playboy's Girls of the ACC issue. But for once, we didn't just stand around scratching our we used our collective anger to get that Pakistani store owner deported and his kids sent to an abusive foster home. Power to the people. But back to Scotland for a second. The news report said after seven weeks the police decided to evict the protesters. So they stormed in, dressed in the weird Scottish bright yellow parkas that scream, Don't mess with me, I'm prepared for it to rain.
and they escorted the students out of the building. And here's what's weird. Every person involved agreed that the police, who hardly touched the kids, had overreacted with extreme excessive force, like Thor's hammer smashing down on a mere child. These police had shown up with their endless supply of lethal rain slickers and asked the students to leave. The BBC even had students in their studio to talk about how terribly their egos were bruised. I'm not just making fun of the United Kingdom's media. I'm actually bringing, bringing this up to say maybe this is the right way to do things. Maybe we shouldn't have SWAT team cops wearing all black spraying grizzly bear mace in the eyes of every 17-year-old who opposes the World Trade Organization's policies of financial enslavement. Maybe people should be allowed to march outside the Republican National Convention without taking a tear gas canister to the abdomen and being put in jail for three days. Maybe a kid should be able to exercise his freedom of speech and call a cop a without taking a taser to the you know, maybe if we put all of our police officers in ridiculous yellow SpongeBob SquarePants outfits, they might chill out and stop going amphetamine Rambo on a hippie simply because he had the nerve to draw a big sign saying gay people should be allowed to kiss. guards alike made the phenomenon of imprisonment more hellish than usual. That's because according to at least one broadcast report, men at the medium to minimum security lockup, particularly those convicted of sexual crimes against children, were raped by other prisoners and by several guards who allowed it to happen with ranking staff turning a blind eye. While the radio report was unconfirmed, the Department of Corrections did the unprecedented. They fired the prison's warden, two deputy superintendents, and even the major there, something virtually unheard of in this business. Eight prison guards have been suspended without pay earlier this year. An Allegheny County grand jury is presently investigating the sexual assault charges. No state government official has commented publicly on the claims, but certainly the firings of the prison's highest-ranking staff suggests that something is rotten in Denmark. What makes this particularly poignant is the state prison in Pittsburgh, which was closed in 2005 because of staffing, security, and budgetary reasons, isn't the maximum security prison that it once was. It reopened in 2007 as a treatment center, a kind of medical unit for men suffering from addictions, physical ailments, or even serious psychological issues. That's why it was reclassified as a medium minimum security facility, that these men who were promised and provided treatment were treated so basely by other prisoners and reportedly by guards as well gives us some sense of precisely how poisonous American corrections has become. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. 
I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps a rolling on down to San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and it's the Onion Radio News. Jury selection is proving difficult in the trial of the jury killer. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Defense attorneys for Thomas David Skrepnak, accused in 1999 of fatally stabbing all 12 members of the jury hearing his armed robbery trial, are having trouble finding unbiased jurors for his upcoming murder trial. Lead defense attorney, Patricia Wynn. It is difficult to find a jury that won't be at least somewhat prejudiced against Thomas, especially given the hot button issue of jury murder at hand here. Skrepnak, who has previously faced numerous charges of jury beating, all of which ended in mistrial, is free on bail while the selection process continues. Doyle Redland for the onion. The Obama administration is upping its domestic spying. Last year, it made 1,579 applications to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. That's an increase of 15% from the year before. And last year, the FBI issued 24,287 national security letters, which are essentially subpoenas that it writes without even bothering to go to a judge. That number is up 70% from 2009. And even worse, the number of people targeted by these national security letters has more more than doubled. Now, Obama's domestic spying hasn't yet hit the record levels registered during the Bush administration, but this huge increase over the past year is cause for great alarm. We don't know why the Obama administration is so intent on spying on Americans, and we don't know who's getting caught in the net because there are gag orders imposed on people who get slapped with those national security letters. I'm worried about lack of oversight here. Russ Feingold was the most vigilant member of the Senate about this issue, and now he's out of there. And we can't trust the FISA court. Of all those 1,579 applications the Obama administration submitted, the FISA court denied not a single request. It's a rubber stamp that's getting worn out from overuse. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Have you heard, Lewis, about this bill sponsored by Senator John McCain? He was, he was 
uh, in a way, kind of almost the president. Uh, 3081 is the number of this proposal. It's the Enemy Belligerent Interrogation, Detention, and Prosecution Act. This is a concern both for individuals, I hope, on the left and on the right. It would authorize the federal government to detain American citizens indefinitely without a trial, without even charging them with anything, without even reading them their Miranda rights. Okay? Homeland Security Secretary has classified veterans, retired law enforcement, Ron Paul supporters, uh, conservatives as terrorists. That we know. So we know that the skills and the discernment that exists on behalf of the government uh, to, to figure out exactly who is a risk are not always that great. That right. I think we know. We also know that when it comes to, for example, the no-fly list, Ted Kennedy was on the, the no-fly list for a while. So we know that with that assessment of people, we were kind of off also in many cases. The bill is just going to open up the door not only to that, but to the, to the violation of what, what many others are saying are a number of constitutional amendments. Uh, the bill would provide for interrogation and detention of en enemy belligerents, is the term that's being used, who commit hostile acts against the U.S. And the idea, I guess, is that the government wants to start, wants to continue, wants to expand, use whatever word you want, being able to just pick anybody up, whether or not you have real evidence against them, whether or not you just have hearsay, hold them indefinitely without even accusing them of a crime, and interrogate them. This is essentially the goal of this bill. It's like uh, the Patriot Act on steroids. In a sense, it is. Yeah. And this is opposed by the Campaign for Liberty, the Cato Institute, Amnesty International, Arkansas Libertarian Party. We're seeing opposition to this from all sides. So you should think, Lou, as well. If, if there's broad-based opposition and people from all sides of the political spectrum who don't like this, certainly it won't pass, right? Because the will of the people is represented in our political system. I'd hope so. But as we know, that's often not the case. And it's appalling to me that two so-called patriotic men, I mean, who even, who, who even knows at this point whether the patriotic people are the McCains or, or not, but John McCain and John Thune. McCain spent five years in a North Vietnamese POW camp. John Thune professed to have heartland values. How could they put forth such an intellectually dishonest, poorly defined, as many of these bills are, ill thought out, and according to many legal experts, blatantly unconstitutional law. There is no definition about what material support means. What does it mean to provide material support to a terrorist organization? Well, I don't think you should be surprised. I don't think you should be surprised either, Lewis, that it's not clearly defined. That's how these laws are used to the advantage of those who don't want clear definition. They want a, a free reign to basically do whatever they want. Right. Any U.S. citizen who's a war protester and publicly exhibits an anti-government sentiment could actually fall under the category here where you could just be held indefinitely without being charged for anything. And you know, if you watch this show or listen to this show at all, and you know too, Lewis, sometimes you pay attention, I think you'll be able to attest to this, I dislike Nazi comparisons. Any comparison from either side, about either side, to being a Nazi, I don't like. But I think you're going to make one now. But I am going to make one, and it's not a comparison to Nazis in the abstract, but the consequences 
of S-3081 are reminiscent of Nazi Germany's discriminatory decrees which were enacted on the last day of February in 1933 in terms of the latitude and the effect that they would have. And that's a Nazi comparison I'm comfortable making. calling. Uh, I was listening to your religion show, your latest one, and I had to tell you the first clip, I was really, um, thought it was just mocking for the sake of mocking, and I turned it off, said I can't listen to this, but I remembered you had this wonderful feature that I can just fast forward past what I don't like, so I did, and I'm very glad I did. I think that was an excellent show. Um, I am religious, I go to church. Um, but I have my own questions, and I really want to hear what other people are saying about religion, and I thought it was very well done. I'm really glad that I went ahead and listened to it. And uh, call to action, I just wanted to put in a plug for the organization waterforsudan.org. It's an organization out of Rochester, New York. Uh, Salva Dutt runs it. He is one of the uh, lost boys from Sudan, and he builds wells in Sudan to help people um, be able to get water and to be able to stay in their villages instead of spending all day looking for water. So I really appreciate it. Love your show. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, uh, Jay. This is Eric from uh, York, Pennsylvania. I'm just calling you because I listened to uh, the last podcast that you put out, um, the one about Newt Gingrich. And um, at the end, um, you there's a clip from uh, Citizens Radio, and uh, about a 10-minute clip, and they're talking about consistency, and uh, they're really smug about being consistent, and and they're not consistent. Um, they're not consistent about abortion. They're not consistent about Planned Parenthood. They're not consistent about a lot of things. And 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 it's one thing to have a nuanced view because you talk about nuance all the time, but it's another thing to you know, talk about consistency and, you know, to be lectured about it for 10 minutes and, you know, the smug, smugness that they have. Um, I was kind of turned off by that. And, um, you know, hey, I love this show. I've been listening for a few years. I, I joined as a member um, a few months ago when I had the funds to do it. And, you know, I, I'm going to be a, a yearly member. And I'm, I'm, I did, it was one of the first things I did when I received <laughs> when I received uh, the funds to do it. You know, it's one of the first things that I did. And I'm going to keep listening. And I think, you know, assistant radio is great. But on this one issue, this consistency issue, uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I didn't really feel it. So, anyway, um, thanks for all you do, and uh, and uh, I look forward to hearing some more. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Um, now, today, 
I'm as I have been doing, I'm going to play more voicemails after the show ends because I have so many people who have called in talking about the Bin Laden killing. So I want to get those out, but I don't want to clutter up the show uh, with with as many uh, voicemails as it would take to fit them all in. So if you're interested in those, then hang out after the show for that, or you can skip them, whatever you want. Today, I want to respond to the voicemail we just heard about uh, the Citizen Radio clip, basically uh, talking about being consistent in their uh, arguments, regardless of politician and how it's important to stay true to you know your policy ideals uh, and not just uh, be supportive of, of a you know particular politician, even if they're uh, basically progressive and uh, you know generally on our side. And so, you know, I, I actually received several, um, uh, you know, a couple of voicemails, several emails about that particular clip, uh, you know, from a variety of perspectives uh, about it. And um, and basically what I want to say is, well, the reason I'm responding to it is because there's actually an interesting story behind that clip and, and why it ended up in the show. And so it started by uh, in early May, I received an email from Bob, who I've now had like a long exchange with and, and seems like a very lovely guy. Um, but his initial email uh, went something like this. He says, Jay, since you never seem to miss an opportunity to criticize President Obama, will you do a show on the successful mission against bin Laden, or will you continue to join voices with the right to diminish this great leader and his brand as you did all of last year to help contribute to the success of the Republican Party in 2010? He has always represented himself as a moderate. He never lied to us about that. However, if he isn't left enough, let's destroy him. Thanks for nothing, Bob. So we ended up having a little bit of exchange. And, um, you know, but more broadly, I had this email in the back of my head because I, I really don't receive very many emails from what are now be, uh, being referred to as Obama bots, people who are, uh, you know, strongly in favor of Obama and, you know, kind of they kind of see beyond the policies and are, you know, being supportive of him in a electoral strategy sort of way. Um, and then, and then there are the ones who are like way off the cliff who say, well, if it's Obama, then, you know, then I'm supportive of him. Like if he's doing torture, then he must have a good reason. And I'm, I'm on his side, you know, but th that's not Bob for sure. But I, I get very few emails like this. And so I had this one in the back of my head when I heard that clip originally from citizen radio. And I thought, you know, I've heard shows talk about how it's important to continue to criticize Obama from the left. Uh, but this one was one of the first times when I'd heard like a solid conversation about making that argument about why it's important, not just doing it and not just referencing that you're doing it, not just referencing that there are people uh, on the other side who think we shouldn't be criticizing Obama, but, you know, taking a solid, you know, 10 minutes to talk about it and, you know, why they thought it was important. So with this email in the back of my head, I thought, okay, like I'm going to pull this clip. I should put it in the show because apparently I have listeners like this. Um, you know, I hadn't heard from them before, but there we go. So, so that, that, that's how that clip ended up in the show. And, and there, you know, there's plenty to criticize everyone about. I certainly have things uh, that I would criticize about citizen radio and, um, you know, but for me, that clip, the important thing was, uh, you know, making the argument for it being okay to criticize from the left. The second half of this story that I find interesting is it, it came out of part of the conversation with emailer Bob. And so one of the things he said to me was that he was urging me to see the big picture. 
Uh, so it went something like this. At, at this. Towards the end of one of his emails, he says, please continue to help the president and the country through your commentaries by advocating a progressive agenda, but not losing sight of the bigger picture and the implications of having a Republican Party in total control. And and so that, that really caught my eye because I've heard other people use the phrase bigger picture uh, in, in a huge variety of other contexts. And so I thought about that and... Uh, and I realized almost everybody, whenever they're arguing their particular political position, their their you know uh, electoral strategy or whatever, they always talk about using the bigger picture. So Bob here is talking about this next upcoming election, and he says, you know, please don't get bogged down in, in just the policies and just pushing a progressive agenda. We also have to be supportive of the president so that he can stay in office, um, and that's part of the bigger picture. And I thought, well, I would actually turn that around on its head and say the bigger picture is not just focusing on the next election, but focusing on pushing progressive agendas that push the politicians to the left because then our future politicians will be better because they'll have that pressure from the left pushing them uh, in that direction. But not only that, I believe that a politician is in a better position politically for upcoming elections if they went further to the left. I mean, I have no doubt in my mind that Obama would have higher approval ratings if he was further to the left than he is. And so my idea is not to attack him and, and pull him down for being uh, not as, as progressive as I would like him to be. It's actually to encourage him, if you went further left, you would have more support. You would have a stronger electoral base if you went that way. So that's my idea of seeing the bigger picture. But there are still other people who would say, you're all missing the bigger picture unless you realize that the whole system is corrupt, uh, you know, corporations control everything, all the politicians are beyond uh, redemption, and we all need to vote for third parties. You know, so, that, so uh, you know, they would say to me, I'm still missing the big picture. So anyway, so I, I related this back to Bob, and, and he kind of thought it was an interesting perspective and a good idea, and so he didn't change his perspective, but he stopped saying I should see the bigger picture and began encouraging me to see the smaller picture. And, you know, I can respect that. Um, and so, you know, I think I try to split the difference and, you know, I push progressive policies. I don't support progressive candidates just for the sake of them being progressive. Therefore, I'm supportive of them. You know, I, they, you know, every politician needs to earn my support. And if they're not far enough to the left uh, for me, well, then I'm going to try to push them further to the left. That's that's uh, that's where I come down on it. So anyways, I thought that was uh, interesting and definitely interesting enough to relate back to everyone. And now finally, before I go, I just want to thank, as I always do, a couple of members uh, who help make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Stephen S. signed up for a, uh, a communist membership. Thank you very much, Stephen. A communist membership back on uh, April 25th, just last month, and signed up for a full year in advance. A huge thanks uh, to Stephen for doing that. Uh, and uh, Thomas R. signed up for a leftist monthly membership way back in August, on uh, August 4th, and has stuck with the show since then. Huge thanks to uh, Stephen and Thomas and all of the members and uh, individual donors, of course, uh, can also just drop a couple of bucks in the pot to uh, help support the show. Of course, everyone can support the show in an incredibly important way just by spreading the word about it. Uh, word of mouth is absolutely the number one way that this, this show gets spread to more people. So please keep telling uh, everyone you know about it. Help spread the word about the new YouTube videos that I'm posting, you know, clips of, uh, you know, each individual clip is now posted on YouTube. So it's easy to uh, pass along and share. 
You can donate your Twitter account. That's a, a huge way to help get the word out about the show. That's at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. And in the meantime, uh, to stay connected with the show between episodes and help spread the word online to your uh, you know friends and networks, you can join up with us on Facebook and Twitter themselves. For details on the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine now black and white, you took a picture that wasn't right. This is Brett from Omaha, Nebraska. I just got done listening to the uh, 22-year-old, I forget his name, the 22-year-old college kid that called in talking about how he felt about 9-11 and whatnot. And I'm also 22 years old. Um, I'm also a college student. And I just wanted to give the, uh, a little more insight on what a 22-year-old thinks of, of um, the college kids partying and um, that clip you showed about them being like extremely excited and whatnot. Um, it just struck me as, as completely odd. I mean, when I heard Bin Laden was dead, I felt close next to nothing about his death but then i see these people going on partying screaming usa and their reasons for wanting him dead are basically incoherent almost seemed like just an excuse to party i mean when i heard he was dead i went and researched his transcripts and and looked up the politics behind 9-11 and all that stuff and kind of came to the conclusion that although yes bin laden was a terrorist the same could be said about some factions of the U.S. government and the military-industrial complex that have done terrible things, that have truly terrorized people all over the Middle East, all over the world, really. And so terrorism, is, it seems to be a relative term. I mean, if you're in the Middle East, an American has come off and has been terrorist many times over. And, you know, if you look at the innocent casualties in the Iraq and Afghanistan war, I think they're over, I'm not even sure on this, but I think they're over 100,000 innocent deaths um, from civilians living in those countries and only 3,000 people died on 9-11. I'm not trying to make comparisons here. I'm just saying that if you define Bin Laden as a terrorist and you think he's deserving of, of justice and everybody, college kids, old people, no matter what, should look at some of the things that America has done and said, wow, those are objectively terrorist acts as well. Thanks, Jay. Keep it up. Hey, Jay. My name is Jason. I'm calling from Rupert, Idaho, and uh, I'm a little late on the bandwagon here about this um, whole Osama Bin Laden thing. Um, I just caught episode 487, and uh, that really got me thinking that some of the voicemails you played got me thinking that I need to figure out how I'm feeling about this thing and how I need to articulate what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Uh, 9-11 happened my 
senior year of high school. I've, I'm 27 now. I've grown up, I shouldn't say grown up, my whole adult life has been there. That's the defining moment in my lifetime. There was before that and after that. And while I would like to be able to say that I'm happy about what happened, I'm not. I can't say I'm sad about the death of Osama bin Laden either. I'm, I'm very indifferent to it. And I think there's a, a good number of people my age who might be. I, I, obviously, I can't speak for them, but having lived with this, it's to see it over. It, it's it's really just kind of weird. It's it's like uh, there's just something gone now, but there was never really anything there to go away either. It, when I think of it on the long, larger scale, it's just he's just one more guy that died in this whole horrible series of events, and the death of nobody thrills me. I'm I'm never happy that anyone is is killed or murdered or taken care of, whatever you know terminology you want to use here. But that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, Osama bin Laden not being alive anymore does not bring us any closer to a conclusion to any of this stuff. It might bring us a bit of resolution to some people for some part of this, but when you have a war on terror, it never ends because terror never goes away. Celebrating anyone's death, I think, is is a horrible thing. That made me more uncomfortable than anything I think I could have seen anywhere else. And I think when you really take it all in context and look at the whole thing, um, in a way, we lost. This is not the same America that existed pre-9-11. And I don't think it's been for the better. Sorry for rambling on, Jay. I even made myself a little outline to stay on topic, and I can't do that. Um, thanks a lot. I appreciate all your work. Take care. Hey, this is Daniel from California, and I was just calling because I've been listening to a lot of the commentary on Saddam's death, and I was just curious, you know, we, we, I've heard a number of people say that the justification for feeling gleeful and going out into the streets and celebrating his death is justified because of the fear that he's caused our country and the death that he has caused to our country and all these things, which, you know, I can totally understand and get behind. But I'm curious when, you know, after 9-11, there was tons of news, uh, newsreels showing Middle Easterners celebrating out in the streets. And we looked at them and we hated them for it because they're celebrating the death of Americans. And, but they felt justified because of all the fear and death that we had brought to them. So I'm just curious, you know, were they then justified? Should we then pardon them for celebrating the death of 3,000 Americans in the World Trade Center because we are now celebrating the death of somebody else on their side, you know, or not even necessarily their side, you know, not everybody agreed with Saddam or his actions, but I don't know, it just, I'm a little confused by what's being said just because it doesn't really seem to add up. So, I mean, is everybody justified in celebrating the death of others or should we maybe all just stop celebrating death and stop, you know, 
these wars that are just continuing and continuing maybe take a broader approach to it. I don't know. I, I just am curious to hear what people say. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Uh, hi, Jay. This is Ashley. I'm calling from Syracuse, New York. I wanted to comment um, about Osama bin Laden. Uh, a lot of people have been saying, you know, he really should have been brought back and put on trial. And in theory, I definitely agree with that. But to be honest, I feel like if he was here in the United States now, it would be epic and horrible. And there would be so much pondering between the right and the left. And we're already really worried about retaliation. And it would just put so much heat on the United States. And I hate to, like, be, like, selfish about it and think, you know, oh, what a relief. It's just over with. We don't have to deal with the months of, you know banter and potential violence, but I don't know. That's just how I feel. I'm really glad that it was just dealt with and we can move on. Thank you. Mm-hmm.